0: Good morning to you. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. Facebook crushes profit estimates and the stock hits an all-time high. Yum Brands drops the meat supplier OSI in China over spoiled meat, but McDonald's stands by the supplier. And five people are detained by police. Also, with attention this morning, Chinese stocks in New York hit a three-year high. The RMB is back to almost a three-month high. And American authorities ban U.S. flights into. Tel Aviv. Senator Ted Cruz calls that a boycott of Israel. So some of the stories we'll be looking at here on the program over the next hour. And here's a tease to get us started. Facebook is getting, you know, a lot of positive uh, remarks from the street on their ability to migrate their business from the desktop to the mobile device. Yeah, that's John Sweeney at Bloomberg. And this one from QBall's Tony Chan. The smartphone has become the new remote control of life. I mean, you can now order almost anything over the mobile device. And that's why mobile earnings get so much scrutiny. And that's also why there's a kind of war on talent. The companies don't make money. Ideas don't make money. Industries don't make money. People make money. And I think we've seen in the proliferation of the war on talent, the renewed war that I have not seen since the 2000 time period. And we'll have more from Tony Chan a bit later. Our guests on the program this morning include Richard Harris from Port Shelter Investment Management on markets amid geopolitical concerns. Kenny Lee from TransUnion joins us to talk about cybersecurity and identity fraud. And also with us is Napoleon Biggs from Bole Digital. We'll be looking at the two sides of mainland e commerce Chinese companies selling overseas and Western companies trying to crack into um, the China market. Well, here's how the Asian markets are trading now. The equity markets in Australia, the index is just one point down. In Seoul, the Kospi is up a couple of points. That's about a tenth of 1%. And uh, looking at um, at currencies, the dollar is trading at 101.53 yen, while the euro has slipped to 1.346 U.S. dollars. And the uh, pound sterling now, 13 Hong Kong dollars and 20 cents. Also the renminbi, the latest uh, fix, uh, 6.157, but it has been trading about 6 19. Well, let's get into some of our news and then we'll bring in our guests uh, this morning. As we mentioned, Facebook's earnings were strong, revenue up 61% in the second quarter. It was sparked by mobile advertising. The stock gained in after-hours after rising almost 3% during the regular session. Promotions on wireless devices accounted for 62% of advertising sales. Profit more than doubled from 13 cents a share in the same quarter last year to 30 cents this you know, this quarter the results suggest that facebook has buried concerns about its ability to monetize mobile more now from john sweeney
1: very positive operating margins and very strong uh, cash flow growth and earnings growth so i think the street is very comfortable with the you know the economic model um, that facebook has as it continues to, to grow its business and again it's you know, it's uh, you know, you have to t- take your hats off to Facebook on, on their ability to grow their mobile business, because if you remember at the IPO, that was a huge stumbling block coming out of the IPO. The concern that they, in fact, would not really be able to manage
0: that migration. Tony Chan from Cuba says it is indeed all about mobile. Our expectations are now what is not just the user growth, but the user growth specifically on
1: mobile. And what's happening in this social media space now is you're seeing that there is not one default winner-take-all strategy. We are much more omni-channel. You are seeing people like Pinterest, which are now still
0: private companies getting valued at $5 billion, that are able to complement the likes of a Facebook. But it's all about mobile. Facebook has worked to improve the quality of the promotions on mobile. It has added options for video. It's rolled out applications that can take advantage of people who are mobile. Well, let's also take a look at oil prices now. Uh, Brent crude, $108.03 a barrel. That's not much change. And gold is trading $1,305 even. Also, gold not moving too much here of late. Well, McDonald's is sticking by meat supplier OSI Group in China, but Yum Brands has terminated its relationship with the producer of chicken, pork and beef. Mainland authorities shut down OSI's Shanghai Husi food plant in this past week for allegedly selling expired products. McDonald's said that it will rely on Husi's other operations throughout the country. On Wall Street, the S&P 500 up to an all-time high, although not by much. Apple surged to its highest level since 2012. In the end, the S&P 500 gaining not 0.2% to 1987. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was actually down 25 points at 17,087. Now, here's an interesting uh, quote. John Stolfus of Oppenheimer says, It's an Einstein market, not a Frankenstein one.
2: A Frankenstein market would be, uh, would imply a uh, dysfunction, uh, would, would, uh, a falseness to it, something artificial. But an Einstein is one really, it's the law of relativity uh, is what applies. And in this case, we would have to say for investable assets, when we look at uh, all the asset classes, including cash, bonds, stocks, uh, real estate, uh, uh, commodities, a uh, currency, and alternatives, it keeps pointing back to equities is the most diverse, resilient, and globally uh, diversified uh, group.
0: And as you know, uh, markets are at nearly all-time highs uh, on Wall Street, so it does raise the question of whether or not uh, markets are overheated. And Ethan Harris at Bank of America was asked if he thought that stocks are nearing a bubble. I don't think so. I think equity valuations are pretty sensible right now. Obviously, the Fed's given a little extra juice to the markets. Mm -hmm. I think from the equity market, there's two kinds of Feds. There's the Fed that's very gently exiting, the kind of Janet Yellen Fed. We're going to go slow. We're not going to do anything really uh, unfriendly. And then there's the Fed fighting inflation. Now, that is not the Fed now. Maybe it is the Fed a year from now or two years from now. That is a market that, uh, that could be facing some challenges. Right now, I think it's the friendly Fed, not the bad cop Fed. Not the bad cop Fed and uh, the Fed, uh, not the Fed that would take away the punch bowl, at least at the moment. Still, projections are for interest rates not to go up until around the middle of next year. Let's take a quick look at European markets, he says, without having the data sheet in front of him and not having it. But we're lucky to be joined by Richard Harris, Port Shelter Investment Management, the chief executive officer. Richard, Good morning.
3: Good morning, Brian. Nice yes,
0: I know the uh, European markets were just a little bit up overnight. I don't have the data sheet in front of me. It wasn't by much. Just a few uh, points here and there. Uh, the mood is pretty good, though, up to an all time high on uh, on Wall Street with the S&P 500. And, uh, you know, it's been a fairly good run here. Uh, how do you see the mood at the moment?
3: Yeah, I think that generally the mood's pretty good in Europe too. Um, we've had a bit of disappointing information, a bit of a more disappointing data out of uh, Germany recently, but that's coming after um, some some pretty good moves. Um, but we did see yesterday, for instance, in Spain, an uptick in their uh, in in their growth, uh, GDP growth, economic growth, and um, it does seem to be pretty uh, standard across Europe now that we're seeing these upticks, that things are actually on the uh, moving on the upside rather of the downside. Uh, You've got to remember, though, that the markets have done extremely well in the last 12 months so that some of the fringe markets are up well over 30%. Um, So whether there's an awful lot of upside from here, I'm not sure, but I don't think we're actually going to see markets want to go down.
4: Markets,
0: no doubt, would be higher in Europe uh, if it weren't for what's happening uh, with Russia-Ukraine. We see that European countries appear divided over the kinds of sanctions that should be uh, applied to Russia. Uh, Do you expect to see stronger sanctions here in the next day or two
3: well i think what the europeans are going to try and do is talk very sternly with an even more stern voice but whether the sanctions will be that serious i don't know um uh, in the uk for instance the prime minister is coming under a lot of pressure tonight over the fact that the uk is still selling arms to russia um so the the sanctions i think are starting to bite in certain areas, and the Americans are are quite keen on that. But, of course, the Europeans are very worried that there may be some damage in trade, and the key thing is the fact that they're supplied with a great deal of gas, out of Russia. Yes, that's... So the Germans certainly don't want to see these gas supplies cut. But on the other hand, it is a game of brinkmanship because Russia can't afford uh, not to be paid for gas supplies. So um, I think we're actually in a delicate balance at the moment where everybody will try and do, or at least appear to do the right thing without necessarily taking any very severe action.
0: Yeah, the Russian ambassador to the European Union said yesterday that the sanctions would end up hurting Europe more than Russia.
3: Yes, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? I I saw that. But I think that's part of the diplomatic speak. I mean, obviously, Russia doesn't want sanctions because their economy itself is on a fairly finely balanced. You know, it's very much commodity oil and gas related. um, And it does have this stranglehold over Europe. But of course, the more that Europe diversifies its gas supply away from Russia, uh, the weaker that stranglehold will be. And I think that's obviously preying on the Kremlin's mind.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, a sort of conundrum, and I keep asking my guests about this. You've got the benchmark U.S. Treasury 10-year yield uh, around uh, 247 now, 2.47 percent. It's about at a recent low, at a time when stocks are making all-time highs. How do you reconcile those two?
3: Well, actually, that's fairly traditional, you know, low interest rates, high stock market. Um, and I think we're going to see this game continued for a little while because the uh, the key thing, obviously, everyone is looking out for at the moment is inflation and when interest rates going to go up. Well, um, the UK keep, central bank kept their interest rates stable today. That seems to be the kind of mood. I don't think people are going to want to start pushing interest rates up too quickly for fear of Damaging what is really seems to be a fairly fragile recovery still. So I think interest rates are going to be pushed out. But of course, um, the music will stop when interest rates start to go up. And how that's done and uh, what kind of news we're going to have um, is going to be very important as to the, the, the health of the market.
0: Do you really think my so? Guess is I mean,
3: we're probably not going to see that for another 12 months.
0: Higher bond yields and higher rates, at least at the beginning, would suggest uh, stronger economies, wouldn't they? Uh, do you really think equities will crack then?
3: I think higher higher rates are going to be a big testing time for equities. But of course, uh, as in all of the economics, there's this balance. If we see strong economic growth come through that seems dependably strong and pretty robust, then yes, I think it will run through uh, rising interest rates. And that, of course, is what central banks are hoping. Uh, At the moment, we're not seeing growth that strong, and that's why they're holding back on the trigger.
0: Okay, we've also seen a little bit of a pickup here in mainland stocks uh, in New York. You probably heard me uh, headline that Chinese stocks uh, have moved to a three-year high. Of course, they've been hit pretty hard uh, over the past uh, many years, and we've seen a pretty good rally here in Hong Kong. We had four hundred uh, almost 400 points up uh, two days ago, and yesterday uh, quite strong, too, and the volume was uh, pretty strong. I know you're in Europe, but you're probably still keeping an eye on your home. What's happening?
3: I I have. Um uh, the the um, uh, Hang Seng, um, the HSCI index, which really looks at uh, Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong, is always an interesting one. And we have seen a bit of a pickup in banks. We've seen quite a big pickup in some of the big state-owned industries like the oils. Um, what seems to be happening is that people are starting to recognize that the Chinese actually are putting some inflation into the economy. Now, maybe it's some talk about helping the property market, which is quite weak. Maybe it's the fact that some of the infrastructure projects uh, are starting to come through. Or maybe they're just relaxing the, the liquidity um, in the markets and in the financial system, this sort of movement, if you like, of oil that lubricates the system. Maybe they're just trying to do that uh, a little bit more than they are. And I think the market is picking up on this sense because what we've seen for a long time is the Chinese market has been really chronically weak. But the big uh, question mark has been, would the Chinese actually try and reflate the economy just as they have in Japan, just as they did in the U.S. and Europe? And there does seem to be a bit of that coming through. If it looks as if that's coming through strongly, I could see the Chinese market popping up quite strongly. Um, And I think the market's just testing the water at the moment to see if this is actually
0: coming through more food safety concerns i don't know if you've been following the shanghai husi but this is really quite big because this is a company that's uh, really owned by another group based in chicago that has a long long relationship with mcdonald's mcdonald's sticking by uh, the supplier but um, yum brand saying sayonara Um, do you as a hong kong resident and somebody who travels to china a lot do you think that this is still a very very big concern food safety in china Uh, I mean, it looks as if it's a problem. People I know live in
3: China still don't believe that food safety is is something that's been handled properly. Um, And it's a very, very big issue because it's so difficult to monitor... Um, every one of these situations. It's something that the Chinese authorities are going to have to really uh, come to grips with uh, and dealing with at the local level. Um, Food safety is is very important and is a key issue. Um, Clearly, McDonald's feel that uh, they've got a handle on the problem that that maybe KFC don't. Um, uh, But I think it is an issue. The other piece of interesting news that's coming out is there's talk that WH Group, which uh, is the big food um, uh, packager who pulled their IPO about three months ago, are talking about coming back to the market. So whether all this stuff about food scandals in China will impact that a second time uh, will be quite interesting in the next week or so.
0: You know, what's quite interesting is, uh, you know, all these uh, diverging prices in commodities, corn very low, beef prices, meat prices generally very high. You wonder why Smithfield Foods sold to Shanghai, and now they call the company WH Group, as you say. You wonder, you know, with prices up so firmly now, why they ever sold?
3: Well, they're probably taking themselves as well, although you don't really know why, why these things are, uh, are sold. It could be uh, a major shareholder that just needs to cash out for some particular reason, or, or it could just be an error of judgment. But it certainly seems as if uh, WH are in the right area. Uh, and certainly looking on further, um, this has to be an area that will continue to be a strong, stable growth area, um, especially if they can develop a reputation for, uh, if you like, Food safety,
0: um, that's going to set themselves uh, apart from the rest. Okay, I've got the data sheet here on European markets. Uh, The FTSE 100 up a couple of points. Uh, The DAX was up 19 points. You mentioned some economic, a few concerns in Germany. The DAX had been up over 10,000, now 97.53. The CAC was up six points at 43.76. The last question, what's your best idea at the moment?
3: Well, I think much as there was a lot of hyperbole on your your opening comments um, from the wires, uh, I think that equity is probably looking okay. Now, um, I, I, I reckoned that 2014 would probably see us having a high single-digit rise, say, in the U.S. And we've currently seen about 8% rise in the U.S. So maybe I've lowballed that a bit. But I would be surprised if this year saw maybe more than, say, 12% rise. So that indicates we don't have much to go up. But I think also we've had the market under some attack from geopolitical news and other stuff. And it hasn't wanted to go down. It's been looking at better earnings still coming out of the U.S. It's been looking at okay. improving economic prospects in places like Europe. So I think the market is quite strongly underpinned now, between now and the rest of the year. So, um, equities still look quite a good place to go in, All even right. if maybe we haven't quite had lower prices in order to actually enter the market.
0: Thank you, Richard. Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer of Port Shelter Investment Management. <laughs> That refreshes uh, refreshes. 20 minutes now after 8 o'clock, and we'll move into our next uh, segment. Much to talk about with Alibaba's upcoming listing, and it made us think with this long discussion we had yesterday that a lot of mainland companies are trying to make it in the West, but there's a flip side to the story as well. And Napoleon Biggs, partner and commercial director of Bole Digital, joins us here in the program. And Napoleon, you're also a founder as well of Host of Web Wednesday. What is that? Uh,
5: We're Wednesday as a community for uh, internet startups, digital media types.
0: Ah, so you've got your eye on lots of uh, startups. Let's talk a little bit about um, about these uh, companies that are trying to get into China, as much as Chinese companies have been listing in New York. Um, is it going to work?
5: I, I think it depends on the category that you're talking about. I mean, uh, you know, I deal with a lot of technology companies. So the technology crowd, you've got the game companies that have been going into China and very successfully from Korea, from the States. Singapore. Yeah. So that, you know, online gaming, they, they're a majority of the content comes from overseas.
0: So it'll be easier for them than, say, American, Canadian, or European companies. The Koreans, yes. The, but the Americans, the
5: Americans are clever in that they, you know, they team up with a local player who has the, uh, has the user base. So it means that they get into the market very rapidly.
0: And so you highlighted uh, online games in particular, and I suppose software and security software. Um, What else? What else is bringing, um, you know, companies to China?
5: Chinese people traveling overseas. I mean, I deal with a lot of, uh, in Bollet, I deal with a lot of luxury fashion brands. And, you know, what you're seeing is that the, uh, I think last year, 97 million Chinese traveled overseas. You go to London, you go to Paris, you walk into Faubourg Saint-Honoré, you know, there's Mandarin speakers in the shops there. So the, the brands are waking up, they're putting, you know, real people in their shops and they're going, wait, wait, these people are now starting to visit my website and order from Paris, from New York, from London. Shouldn't I be going to them rather than waiting for them to come to me? So you're starting to see people wake up to this. The retailers are usually a bit slow in this area and they're saying, hey, maybe we should go into China. Maybe we should be selling in China. Maybe we should have distribution in China.
0: How much is culture a block for companies going in both directions? Because our guest yesterday talking about, one of the guests talking about uh, the building of brands in China, Mm. said that he wasn't sure that Alibaba had what it took to take its business to, let's say, North America.
5: I think, uh, I mean, I've dealt a little bit with companies like Huawei and ZTE and things. I think... It's quite interesting because a company like Huawei. When you go to America, people don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Hawaii? Is it? Mm. So a lot of it, you know, is simple branding. I mean, it's honestly, just the name. I mean, you just mentioned the pork guys, right? Yeah. So I, I think often it's it's the name. Is it perceived to be, you know, so Chinese that I don't know how to pronounce it? Yeah. So the think,
0: Japanese were smart when they took tires to America. They called it Bridgestone.
5: Yes. Exactly. So. Yeah. Um, I think the name is one thing when the Chinese are going overseas. But, I mean, to me, I see several categories. There's, there's the Chinese companies uh, who are buying into foreign companies. I mean, Alibaba, Tencent, these kind of guys, they're in, they're in the States. They have bought into companies like Fab. They, so they, they buy into these companies, and they're a shareholder. So they're there, but they're kind of behind the scenes, and they learn a lot in doing that.
0: One of the points that he was making was more about the customer service side mm. for mainland companies going in, that, um, that it's more than just about price now. Do you feel that as well? You mean going into China or going no, out going of in, China? No, going out of China into America. He, he was concerned that maybe mainland companies uh, might not, not have the same levels of customer service in the West that the West is accustomed to.
5: I think that's more the case in China, in that you've got foreign brands coming into China, hoteliers, luxury people. You know, when you walk into a shop or a hotel, you want to be treated like a king or a queen. But you know, if the service mentality isn't there, it changes that experience. So the customer service is more that way. I think Chinese brands going overseas I don't think they suffer that because they just hire local teams. I mean, why would that be an issue? I don't agree. Mm.
0: Well, for an online company, though, um, you know, that's more like the ease of using the website. Some people say that uh, Taobao and Tmall are not mm. that easy to use, and that if that if that model is going to be popular, let's say outside China, that they're going to have to make it easier.
5: You're talking about a design element. I call it yep. Nathan, I call it Nathan Road. So, you know, when you first come to Hong Kong, a Westerner, you walk down Nathan Road, and you're just. Bombarded by imagery, uh, and this is the kind of Asian way of doing a website. It's, you know, there's so much going on. I, I originally came to Hong Kong to design websites, and I remember the, the Western approach was put as little as you can on the site, you know, like Google. Hmm. Uh, and if a Chinese designer would see that, they'd go, why is this all this empty space? So empty, yeah, it's so empty. It must must be nothing happening. So I think I think what you've mentioned is more the the cultural thing of what do I expect when I arrive at a, at a shop or or a website. Should it be really busy? Should it just direct me one place? So, so yeah, you made a point there. Um, I think, you know, the, these in the website space, they go into the West and they, you know, they change their design. I mean, you look at Alibaba, what they're doing with T Mall, they, uh, they have changed, they're bending over backwards to change the look and feel of uh, stores on T Mall for the Western brands. Because the Western brands say to them, uh, I won't put up any of my branding on your website until you make it look and feel like what I expect it to look and feel.
0: So do you think Alibaba is getting it, getting it right with the redesign?
5: Uh, you mean in terms of T-Mall? Yeah. Uh, they're getting it right in terms of the look and feel and, and the expectations. What they're, they're missing out on is that Alibaba and T-Mall is perceived to be a discount place. Whereas if you're a Western fashion brand, you don't want to be a discounter. You, know, you sell on quality, on uniqueness. Mm-hmm. So they've got a bit of a disconnect between... The look and feel, and you know, the the branding of it is in China. You say Taobao, it's like that's where I can get discount stuff, right?
0: Yeah, okay. Everybody knows Alibaba and Tencent and uh, Baidu and um, I suppose uh, Weibo. Um, setting those aside for the moment, what are some of the really exciting smaller stories that uh, you can tell us about success stories uh, um, that that you've seen closely? In technology or whatever, whatever. I mean, uh, you mentioned uh, some uh, luxury, but just generally across the board for business.
5: I think that there's a lot of exciting stuff in the mobile space because obviously, you know, I think just recently China's uh, access to the Internet via mobile has overtaken, you know, doing it from a desktop. So you're starting to see a lot of interesting things happening in mobile uh, from from payments, uh, people moving in China is actually ahead of the states, ahead of Europe in terms of people's experience buying through a mobile. They're not quite as reticent as they might be in in the US or UK. And then you've got, uh, you know, but bear in mind you've got a generation of people who are suddenly empowered to express themselves. So these people are going into websites like MeiliShuo, MogZhe, and these are sites where people are showing off. Um, they're showing off what they wear. And in doing that, they, you know, they basically make money by showing the nice handbag, the clothes that they're wearing. So it's quite an interesting cultural shift because you're, in a way, it's, uh, it's going from the kind of shy, you know, image we have of, of a Chinese person compared to an American who is kind of showing off to suddenly these people on, online are very expressive, telling the world what they think, and there's an, a system in there for them to make money from it. So it's, it's quite an interesting mixture of, you know, a cultural change supported by some kind
0: of business you mentioned uh with the financial uh, payments uh, system uh, uh which are the companies that are actually uh, the furthest out ahead is it tencent and alibaba or others
5: um, they are because they have a net, you know they have their user base Right so, in terms of if you look at the numbers they 're always higher with them in terms of what they 're doing. I think that they, what they do is they go out and they buy into uh, technology that they see out there but they there there is in the internet in, in industry in China, people say, be beware of these guys if you start a new business they 'll either copy you because they 've got truckloads of developers or they 'll buy you. So I think what you 're seeing is yeah, in, in the payment space it 's definitely Ali uh, Alipay and tempe right mm. uh, what is it Saifutong Tong. Bar, right? These are the two different Chinese ones, right? So they're and they're moving ahead. They're, they're doing payment directly from your phone. You can go into shops and I'll pay. I mean, it's what PayPal is behind.
0: Behind. Okay, so we have to wrap up, but just in thirty or forty seconds or so, um, which are the Chinese companies that are going beyond China into the West and doing it the best?
5: Funnily enough, they're not that famous. I think there's companies like TLC who make you know TV screens, mm-hmm. things like that. They've got a roaring trade in Latin America, you know, third world. Mm. I suppose you call it third, developing countries, right? Uh, you know, Southeast Asia. Uh, Huawei, even though nobody can pronounce the name, is is obviously massive. I think you're starting to see now uh, people. Uh, I mean, these, the guys you mentioned, the early uh, early developers are going out there. I don't see much happening in the fashion world because it's quite hard to be a Chinese fashion brand overseas. Mm.
0: Shanghai Tang, I guess, has done a little bit. uh, Yeah, uh, that's how how, how Chinese
5: was the owner of Shanghai Tang? Well,
0: pretty British. (laughs) Pretty darn British. Yeah. Um, What about higher? Higher, yeah. Uh, Higher, uh, I mean... In appliances.
5: I think the Chinese, those kind of, you know, white labeled goods, right? Yeah. They've been very clever because they haven't gone into America first. They go yeah. to developing economies oh, and they yeah. make their
0: footprint there. So South America's big. Okay, yeah. well Napoleon, thank you very much uh, for joining us here on the program. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we'll get to the news in just a moment. That's Napoleon Biggs, by the way, partner and commercial director of Bole Digital. So the news coming up uh, in just a moment. Uh, we'll leave you with how the markets are trading here just before the break. Uh, the is up, up five points. Uh, we see Australia higher sole as well. But these gains are minimal. They're just in a few percentage uh, or tenths of a percentage point okay so let's uh, close out with a little look at the weather today Uh, expecting uh, mainly cloudy sky showers some sunshine expected 32 degrees as the high sunny periods tomorrow the news is next the news with samantha butler
4: A pro-democracy campaigner says another mock referendum could be held on ways of electing a chief executive without public nomination. Next month, Beijing is expected to rule out allowing the public to nominate CE candidates. Several pro-democracy groups say they'll launch actions such as blocking streets and boycotting schools unless Beijing's ruling gives voters genuine choices. A co-organizer of the Occupy Central campaign, Chang Kim Man, spoke to RTHK this morning.
2: Well, of course, the idea of genuine universal suffrage is much broader than just civic nominations. If civic nomination is ruled out, uh, but the government is willing to give something which is consistent with international standards, we will call another round of civic referendum for people of Hong Kong to choose again whether they will accept it even without civic nominations.
4: Over 780,000 people voted in a mock poll in June, choosing from three electoral methods which involved public nomination. Rescue teams are searching for survivors in the wreckage of a passenger plane that's crashed off the coast of Taiwan, killing at least 42 people. Radio Australia's David Marchese reports.
3: After aborting its initial landing, the domestic TransAsia Airways flight attempted an emergency landing in stormy weather before crashing on Penghu Island off Taiwan's west coast. There were 54 passengers and four crew on board. Officials say it's likely 47 people have been killed. It's still not known if the weather played a role in the crash, with authorities saying the conditions did not exceed international regulations for landing. The flight had earlier been delayed because of a typhoon.
4: You're listening to the news on RTHK.
0: Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. The time is 8.33. Our headline stories this morning, Facebook with very strong earnings out, the stock hitting an all-time high. Markets were generally higher overnight, the S&P 500 up to a record. Yum! Brands has dropped the meat supplier OSI over a spoiled meat in China, but McDonald's sticking by its old partner. And we also saw Chinese stocks as traded in New York up to a three-year high. And uh, we'll be returning to our coverage of Financial Issues. Issues in a few short minutes, uh, Kenny Lee from TransUnion, for the Fraud Prevention Asia-Pacific uh, um, uh, Department there, will be with us later in the program, about 10 minutes or so. And uh, we'll be looking at uh, online security and at what you can do to feel a bit safer with uh, your identity. And we'll do that, as I mentioned, about, uh, uh, say, 20 minutes before the top of the hour. But now we get to the news in depth. It now looks almost inevitable that Hong Kong will be hit by a civil dis- disobedience campaign next month. That's because pro-democracy campaigners decided last night to launch some form of a disruptive campaign if Beijing rules out public nomination for the chief executive election. But organizers of Occupy Central, the Alliance of True Democracy, the Democratic Party, the Civil Human Rights Front, and also student groups all say whether or not a full-scale occupation is launched will depend on Beijing's decision on political reform. One of those behind the Occupy Central campaign, Professor Chen Kinman explained their position to Mike Weeks.
2: Well, if Beijing rule out civic nomination in August, we've done at the same time explaining to Hong Kong people how the nominating committee can guarantee a fair elections. while we will express our disappointment through some protest action, because we believe that it is the responsibility of the government to explain to the people... How without, you know, civic nomination, that we can still attain a genuine universal suffrage. This is the promise made by Beijing. It's not just one, one, one person, one vote. People should have genuine choice in terms of diversity of candidates.
1: Now, we know uh, Beijing is almost definitely going to rule out um, public nomination. So what form of protest are you going to launch then?
2: Well, uh, we are yet to make a decision on the forms of protest, but some people suggest that they should launch uh, protest action like strike. And even some groups believe that it's time to occupy central. But um, uh, we believe that we, we need to consider very carefully the specific content of the National People Congress decisions in August. Uh, if Beijing um, further laid down a very narrow framework to the extent that a genuine universal suffrage cannot be developed, we will consider Occupy Central sooner than we plan. But this is not exactly what we want. We still want to see the proposal made by the SAR government. And we, we, we are hoping that there's still room to discuss about genuine democracy. Uh, but the problem is whether they will lay down a very narrow uh, framework. Say, for example, if the composition of the nominating committee needs to follow strictly the model of the election committee, and if the threshold of nomination is as high as 50 percent, of the nominating committee members, then I don't think there's any chance to design an election method that meets international standards. It will be very disappointing if uh, Beijing laid down such a framework uh, in August.
1: Some people have argued that this is just a step towards what uh, many might consider genuine universal suffrage, that if we accept this, then uh, there's, there's a chance for more reform in the future, a phase two or a phase three. What do you say to that?
2: Well, um, I guess also many people will believe that it's this is a kind of breach of promise made by Beijing. In the past two constitutional reform, many people like me who did not ask for full democracy because we respect the decision made by the MPC Standing Committee. Now, suddenly, Beijing changed the destination of reform into the beginning or the starting point of reform. Uh, it will totally destroy the trust between Hong Kong and Beijing. There is no guarantee that after 2017, Beijing will honor its promise Make now. So I don't think it will be acceptable uh, to many people, particularly to the pan-democratic camp in the Nationality Council.
0: Professor Chen Kinman there, speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today with RTHK's Mike Weeks. Moves are underway to try to reach a compromise. The chief secretary held talks yesterday with some 20 pan-democratic lawmakers and agreed to tell Beijing of, of the Democrats' wishes for discussions. Carrie Lam described the meeting as encouraging, but she said she couldn't promise that any such talks would actually be held as time is running out.
4: Our purpose of the meeting is for us to listen to their requests for meetings with officials of the central authorities responsible for constitutional development in Hong Kong. Our function is really to listen very attentively to uh, uh, their wishes so that we can truthfully reflect their requests and their views to the central authorities.
0: Chief Secretary Kerry Lam, the vice chairman of the pro-government business and professionals alliance, Jeffrey Lam, has urged the pan-democrats to engage in what he called rational dialogue with officials here and in Beijing. He was speaking as his group handed over more than a 100 signatures to the Alliance for Peace and Democracy to support their anti-occupy central campaign. Mr. Lam said that the pan-democrats should no longer insist on civil nomination because this has been repeatedly ruled out by Beijing.
6: The nomination process uh, within the basic law is to be done by a nomination committee. So right now, what we have to do urgently is to see how we should form the nomination committee. You know, the composition uh, and also the number. And we all have to follow the law.
4: So are you positive that pandems may have a chance of going for CE? Uh,
6: If the nomination number is like um what we had you know one tenth or one eighth or uh every, everybody has a chance, but honestly and Democrat with very strong party backgrounds uh will will they go through to the second stage you know. I have some doubts.
4: When you say strong political background, do you mean like radicals or, or what? Well,
7: you know,
6: strong political backgrounds, put it this way, with strong political affiliation.
0: Jeffrey Lamb speaking there to RTHK's Priscilla Um. Still ahead in this half hour, nearly 50 people believed to have been killed after a Trans-Asia Airways plane crashed near Penghu Island. And also, uh, some of the victims of the Malaysia Airlines jet shot down over eastern Ukraine have been flown home to the Netherlands. So those stories still ahead. Well, the time is now 19 minutes before 9 o'clock. And we'll just give you a quick market update. The Nikkei up 15 points. It's a tenth of a percent. Most of the equity markets in Asia, slightly higher. Gold slipping a little now. $1,304.80 an ounce. Well, some 68% of Hong Kong people say they're worried or very worried about identity theft. This comes from an online survey of some 500 adults that was commissioned by TransUnion, and it turned up some very interesting results. We're joined by Kenny Lee, who is uh, with the Fraud Prevention for the Asia-Pacific region at TransUnion. Kenny, good morning. Good morning, Brian. What's kind of interesting is that even though so many people are worried about identity theft, an awful lot of them are still willing to give out a lot of personal information over the Internet.
7: That's right. Uh, The recent survey that was conducted showed that a high percentage of the respondents who are Hong Hong Kongers often reveal sensitive personal information on social media. But at the same time, they're also very worried about identity theft. So it seems that Hong Kongers want it both ways.
0: So would you say that people should be a lot more careful about what they actually put uh, on Facebook or other social media sites? Just be really careful about any private information.
7: Well, well, that's right. Uh, Your personal information is yours and you have to be vigilant about about, uh, sharing that information all over the internet. Because as you know, uh, information that's stored in the internet is never deleted. It's, It's this forever. What is actually identity theft? Well, identity theft is uh, defined as a form of stealing where uh, someone assumes someone else's identity. Uh, this is usually a method to gain uh, access to benefits and resources and um, credit under that person's name.
0: What are the key details that people have that can be used for that? For instance, you know, you can have f- photos of yourself online, you can say that you worked at RTHK, whatever, but that's not mm-hmm. going to enable someone to actually be able to pose as you. Um, what are some of those details that people should be extra careful about?
7: Well, you'd be surprised with very little information, uh, a lot can be done. Uh, people should be very concerned about uh, providing their name, the Hong Kong ID, number, uh, credit card numbers, address, uh, any sort of personally identifiable information that can identify you as a specific specific person uh, should be safeguarded. Hmm.
0: So tell us what what people should do overall to strengthen their uh, integrity online. Hmm.
7: Well, I, I typically boil it down to uh, three simple steps. Uh, limit, remove, and maintain. First, uh, you want to start limiting the amount of personal information uh, that is given out, whether it's, perf- whether it's over the phone or posted online, because identity thieves often try to extract that information from you or troll or hack into websites to get that information. Secondly, is to remove any unnecessary information. If you have old statements, start shredding receipts and bank statements. And uh, you know, if you don't, if if the less that there is out there about you, the harder it is for identity thieves to to steal it. And lastly, is to maintain and just to be vigilant about about your own personal information. Uh, Review uh, monthly bank statements to ensure that uh, no fraudulent transactions were posted under under your name. And also that uh, you should note that on, on, on your bank statements, if your billing address has been changed, is often the first telltale sign that your identity may have already been stolen.
0: If you don't own the, the computer or the server that's storing the data, how can you get it removed?
7: Uh, often it's uh, actually very difficult. Um, you know, there are some services out there that uh, allow you to or help you uh, remove that information, but uh, you know, without without direct access to that information, you often have to go through the you know the corporate policies or or ask for that information to be deleted. And you have to be very persistent. It's not easy to get through to the right person to, right. To, the, to have that done. Peeling back the multiple layers of bureaucracy to get it is
0: very hard. Yeah, what about um, some? Uh, some other measures that like for instance banks have these tokens that uh, that they use uh, Is that something that you think will proliferate more in in time where companies um, will provide some sort of? Um, security token
7: Well, yes uh, for, for, for for banks in Hong Kong. It's very popular to offer uh, Devices uh, such as tokens uh, pin pads um, one time passwords or dual passwords and that's what's worked. Well, uh, you know, there's uh, up-and-coming methods such as knowledge base questions where you ask questions only that person would have answers to. And, for example, it's gaining traction in Hong Kong uh, the jockey club uses that, um, knowledge-based questions as part of the mobile betting application. So every time you open up the mobile betting app, uh, you have to answer some static questions such as what is your favorite color or what's the, what's the name of your, your pet's name.
0: Do you, what do you think works best? The, uh, the tokens or uh, for instance, when you try to do something, then that company will send a text to your phone and then you have to take the code from that and enter it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, well,
0: both can be effective, but is there a preference?
7: Uh, what we typically say is the best practice in the security world is to layer the security. What you want to do is have an effective combination of different authentication methods that work best for your consumer and your business. So combining it is, is, is Th- very good.
0: This is not exactly a security question. It's, it's more really like um, just uh, advice to people. Uh, we all know that we should change our passwords uh, regularly. How do you keep track of them? How, how can people have ten different passwords and change them every month and somehow remember them
7: that 's a very good question i mean it 's very often a burden to the users to have multi- access to multiple websites as more users go online and they want to store their information uh, there's certain companies like google who, who have a Google wallet that helps you you know um, have you provide verified access to different websites Facebook also does something similar where they provide you Facebook verified access to different websites but uh, I would always say that um, like a simple tip to maintain your passwords is always to keep the email password different from your other passwords. Essentially, that is your lockbox. So make sure that a strong password and it's very different from any password that you use elsewhere.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Why is, uh, you know, I guess that whenever you lose a password, then that email uh, that that's email right. account is key. So that that is the most important single thing to keep uh, private. That's right. Okay, give, leave me with one horror story, one sort of thing that should give people listening to this program uh, the incentive to strengthen up their security profile
7: well i think the horror stories are out there in the headlines every day i mean you can open a newspaper without finding out that a website or a major bank or a major company has been breached uh in the last in the last few years you see that accelerating you know there's a lot of horror stories out there as soon as you open the newspaper
0: yeah all right kenny thanks very much for coming in and joining us here on money for nothing that's kenny lee from transunion this is money for nothing the time is now 12 and a half minutes before nine o'clock and angelina draper is into our studios now angelina has been working with me producing the program and she's also here for our tech update angelina
8: Good morning. U.S. mobile chipmaker Qualcomm reported better-than-expected revenues, but its earnings guidance for the current quarter disappointed analysts. The stock fell 4.8% in aftermarket trading. Qualcomm admitted it was having trouble collecting licensing royalties from some Chinese manufacturers. The company also said China represented a significant opportunity, but added that there were also significant challenges. S&P Capital IQ Scott Kessler says licensing revenues have been disappointing in China.
9: Qualcomm and a lot of other chip companies are really looking forward to this kind of mobile transition uh, to next generation wireless networks in China. And what's been going on, frankly, is that the rollout has been occurring at a slower and perhaps more interrupted pace than many had expected.
8: Google has agreed to purchase the Helsinki-based graphics company Draw Element, a company specializing in analysis and assessment of mobile 3D graphics. The move is expected to help Google address smartphone fragmentation of Android. About six versions of the operating system currently run on a multitude of devices with different levels of user experience. Google has not yet commented on the deal. Facebook earnings beat analyst expectations as the company more than doubled profits in its second quarter. Sales from mobile marketing rose significantly to represent more than 60% of overall advertising sales. Facebook says nearly 1.1 billion users access the social networking site at least once a month from mobile devices. and That's 31% more than last year. India's best-known e-commerce company, Flipkart, has reportedly raised over 1 billion US dollars in funding. The company, founded by two Amazon alumni in 2007, is expected to make the announcement next week. It would be the largest funding round, not just by an Indian company, but worldwide, second only to last month's 1.2 billion round achieved by Uber. And Apple is facing a class-action lawsuit over a series of alleged violations of the California Labor Code. According to plaintiffs, as many as 20,000 current and former employees from both retail and corporate operations might be affected. The hourly wage employees claim they were not given lunch or rest breaks, as well as final paychecks in line with California law.
0: Okay, Angelina, thank you very much. Our tech update here on Money for Nothing in Time now, 10 minutes before 9 o'clock. I'll just give you a quick weather update, Uh, mainly cloudy with some showers today. We're still keeping an eye on the severe tropical storm Matmo. It's centered about 160 kilometers northwest of Fuzhou, and it's uh, forecast to be moving at about 22 kilometers per hour across inland Fujian and to weaken gradually. Back to our news coverage. Nearly 50 people are believed to have been killed after a trans Asia Airways plane crashed while making an emergency landing on Penghu Island in the Taiwan Strait. Taiwan's Civil Aeronautics Administration said none of the victims are believed to have been from Hong Kong or mainland China. The crash happened not long after Typhoon Matmo hit Taiwan yesterday. Ian Pooler asked Taipei-based journalist Cindy Sui for the latest.
10: What we know right now is that only uh Uh, about 10 people were found alive, and those are injured people taken to the hospital. Uh, The other people who were on this line, there were 58 people, uh, including passengers and crew on board. The other people have not been found. No other survivors were found, even though the search crew searched all all night last night. Uh, They're planning to expand the search today to see if they could find any any more survivors, but they don't believe they will. In fact, uh, they've been taking a lot of the bodies to the morgue, and they're in the process of uh, trying to identify the victims' bodies. Um, but it, it's going to be difficult because some of the bodies have been badly damaged. So at this point, um, they're basically preparing for the worst. They're, they're in the process of confirming how many people have actually died.
1: Were there thought to be any casualties on the ground?
10: Uh, no. No, no, one has, no one was killed on the ground, but there were five people uh, who were injured when the plane crashed into two residences near the runway.
1: What's thought to have happened to the plane itself?
10: Well, that is still being investigated. What we know is that at the time of the accident, uh, there was still uh, there was a, a thunderstorm in the area. The, uh, the typhoon warning, land warning had already been lifted and the airports had opened in Taiwan. The Penghu lies in, in the outer uh, northwest off the northwest coast of Taiwan is an outer area. It, it, it might have still been affected by the periphery of the typhoon as it moved uh, away from Taiwan toward mainland China. So there was still rain, even though the airport was open. So there might be some people who are asking questions as to why the Civil Aeronautics Administration has decided to uh, lift the uh, land warning and allow flights um, you know, in the outlying islands, we'll not just mainland Taiwan.
1: What effect has the bad weather had on rescue efforts on the island?
10: Well, the, the weather has not had a big impact on on the rescue efforts. Uh, it's, it's not a big area they're searching. It's a flat area, not mountainous. And it, it hasn't been raining that heavily since the accident. So um, it hasn't had a big impact on the search.
1: Now, it is a small island. Do they have the facilities and resources on the island to deal with such an incident?
10: Well, they have hospitals, and the victims have been taken to. Two of the hospitals in Panghu. Uh, so far, we're not hearing about any difficulties in terms of the rescue crews responding to the uh, to the scene and and trying to help the survivors.
1: How has the airline responded to the accident?
10: Well, the airline has apologized, and uh, it has. It, it didn't say why it apologized. It just apologized in general for the accident. Um, it, it hasn't cancel any flights or put any planes on suspension, it's still operating flights as normal. And at the Taipei uh, Songshan Airport today, we see that there are still plenty of passengers waiting to board trans planes, including to go to Panghu.
1: What arrangements are being made for the relatives of the victims?
10: Well, the relatives have been flown by 2 TransAsia flights, uh, one from Taipei and one from the southern city of Kaohsiung, to go to Panghu to deal with the aftermath of the disaster.
0: Reporter Cindy Sui on the line from Taiwan. Some of the victims of the Malaysian Airlines jet that crashed in Ukraine have been flown home to the Netherlands. At an airbase in Eindhoven, flags were flying at half-mast as the first bodies recovered from the wreckage arrived back in Holland. Most of the passengers were Dutch. The country declared a day of national mourning. The BBC's Matthew Price was in Eindhoven.
9: Out of a sweltering sky, they flew back in. With the Dutch Air Force and the Australian, two countries who lost so many. This was not the return anyone imagined. The last post... ..and a country fell silent... One by one, they brought them out. 40 coffins, 40 body bags, and so many more yet to fly out of Ukraine. In towns and cities, they marked the return. This has affected so many here and elsewhere around the world.
10: It's a very black day for everybody.
9: There are so many innocent people has been killed by political idiots, terrorists, and that make, our, that make us very, very angry. And then, with full honours, the convoy set off. Some, the prime minister said, would be identified quickly. With others, it could take months. Outside the airfield, hundreds watched. The hearses heading north, where the grim task of going through each coffin will begin. Many more will follow this route in the coming days, watched by a nation shattered and grieving. This, though, brings no closure. It only
0: makes each and every death more real. Matthew Price reporting. Meantime in Germany, Chancellor Angela Merkel has called for swift action to impose substantial sanctions against Russia. Her comments seem to stand in contrast to yesterday when a meeting of EU foreign ministers appeared to be taking a softer line. The BBC's Damian McGuinness reports from Berlin. Chancellor Merkel has called for substantial
11: sanctions against Russia to be imposed as quickly as possible. And a German Foreign Office spokesperson accused Russia of promising a lot but doing little, saying enough is enough. Germany is Russia's largest European trading partner, so German businesses have been lobbying hard against sanctions, saying they would damage Germany's economy. But public opinion here has shifted since last week's Malaysian Airlines disaster Polls show that the majority of Germans now support sanctions. And newspaper commentators have been scathing about the EU's slow response, accusing Germany's government of being indecisive. Mrs Merkel's new tougher line, though, does not include stripping Russia of the chance to host the Football World Cup in 2018, despite calls from a number of leading German politicians. There are more urgent problems,
0: says Mrs Merkel's spokesman. Meantime, in Ukraine, another two planes have been shot down, this time military. Pro-Russian separatists say that they brought down the jets near where the Malaysian airliner crashed last week, though they still deny shooting that plane down. The Ukrainian prime minister, Arseniy Yatsenyuk, said that there's preliminary evidence that one of the planes today may have been hit by an air-to-air missile, which he said may have been fired by a Russian jet.
11: Allegedly, the second fighter jet was shot down, by the air-to-air missile. It means that it was shot down by another fighter jet and definitely not Ukrainian. We all know who is behind the scene. We know who supplies the weapons. We know who finances terrorists. We know who supports these Russian-led guerrillas. We know who supplied SA-11, which is actually the weapon uh, that shot down uh, the civilian flight MH-17. This is the truth. And I want the world to know the truth.
0: And that is, again, uh, the Ukrainian Prime Minister, Arseniy Yatsenyuk. Well, that's our report for today. Uh, we mentioned earlier that markets in Europe were modestly higher, so even though um, there's a threat of sanctions hanging over Russia has, had, uh, has uh, yet to be decided by Europe, uh, the markets uh, took it in stride. And here in Asia, markets are basically higher this morning, although the Kospi in Seoul has turned just one point lower. but The Nikkei's up 18 points, and in Australia, the ASX 200, up about six points. We'll keep an eye on markets all throughout the day for you here on Radio 3. Looking at currencies, the dollar is trading at uh, now 101.53 Japanese yen, while the euro is worth 1.3459 US dollars. The weather today mainly cloudy in Hong Kong, some showers expected, but sunshine as well 32 degrees as the maximum. The outlook sunny periods with showers over the next few days. The news is coming up next, and after that, morning brew.